Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Going all the way down to verse 31. Hear the word of God. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as in the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day, capital D, drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment, a furry, a fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much more punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who trampled underfoot the Son of God profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and outraged the spirit of grace. You will never hear those verses read at Joel Osteen's church. I'm just saying. Or verse 30. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Anybody else want to preach that passage this morning? Expository preaching, the whole counsel of God, verse by verse, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 31. All scripture is profitable, right? Written for our instruction. So that's where we are, Hebrews chapter 10. I want to remind you, it's important, particularly today's passage, that the, the author is writing to a mainly Jewish audience, Okay, both believers and those who are not believers, just like this audience today. He is often quoted from the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, particularly referring to the Old Covenant, the Old Covenant laws, and in more particularly the rituals and sacrifices we've been studying the past several weeks in the book of Leviticus and other places prescribed by God in the law given to God's people through Moses. And the reason that this author has been quoting Old Testament scriptures is because this Jewish congregation is under persecution because their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he wants to exhort them. He wants to encourage them. And we will see again this morning. He wants to warn them not to return to the old covenant ways, the old covenant rituals to find their hope, their strength, their salvation, connect with God. And he's been exhorting them that the mediatorial, the, the mediation work of the priests of the Old Testament and the animal sacrifices are no longer the ways in which we relate to God. And over the past several chapters, he's been meticulously laying out his case, proving that the Old Covenant ways, which are good, prescribed by God, are but foreshadows. They are but types Pictures of the true realities in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, his, his incarnation. We looked at that last week. God had presented him and gave him a body that was prepared for him. His perfect life, his perfect sacrifice. Brought in a better and a new covenant, a new testament or a new covenant. 
inaugurated, not by the blood of animals, but by his own blood. Jesus is the better and greater priest to anything that Israel has ever, ever experienced. And the book of Hebrews continues to pile up arguments for Jesus' supremacy, his superiority, his sufficiency for us as our better priest. And therefore, he's telling them, he's telling us, there's no need to look anywhere else but to find in Jesus the one true mediator, high priest, who can now usher us into the presence of God, who alone makes atonement for sins, who alone can bring us into fellowship with God, who alone can can give us a, a clarity, a clear conscience, who alone can give to you so that you will know that you are living right in a right relationship with God and destined for eternal glory, even in the midst of persecution. And what we find this morning in our text, in chapter, 19, chapter 10, verse 19, is verses 19 through 21. Let me lay this out for you. 19 through 21 is really a trend, is, is what I see to be transitional verses. Transitions into, it, it's reaching back to what he's been saying, and it's reaching forward through verses 20 through 25 to bring some application so 20, 19 through 21, transitional, 22 through 25, application, everything he's been saying about Christ. And then, un, not unlike the author, he's done this before, we've seen this before, I don't know if he didn't take his meds that morning, but he's got this great encouragement, and then this great severe warning. Like, you're doing a really good job, be careful about that. You know, it's like, whoa. And that's what we'll find. We'll find these warnings, the very important and and clear warnings, verses 26 through 31. So what we'll do is we'll jump in, we'll look at this intro, we'll kind of use it as our intro, and then we'll jump into our outline, okay? So verse 19, we see the word therefore. We've talked about this before. What is therefore, therefore? And what the author is doing is saying, therefore, all that I've been saying about Christ, his supremacy, his sufficiency, his superiority as our great high priest, the the. The, the, the better high priest, the greater high priest, the new and better covenant, all that I've been saying, brothers, since we have confidence because of Jesus to enter the holy places by the blood of Christ, blood of Jesus, verse 20, by a new and living way that he, Jesus, opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since, there's another since, since we have a great priest, over the house of God. So just a couple of things to consider. First, I want to notice in this text the word confidence. Boldness or courage. It doesn't, it says confidence, not arrogance. Okay, there's a difference. Biblical confidence, listen, biblical confidence is shrouded or wrapped in humility. Okay, in humility. Neil Anderson famously said, humility is confidence properly placed. So when when you think of confidence, when you think of our confidence, when you think of biblical confidence, think of it being external, not internal. We We don't have confidence in our own moral righteousness, our moral superiority over others, or somehow reaching down deep inside of you and find that confidence. That's not what it says. It says our confidence is where? In the blood of Jesus. And people who trust in Jesus Christ, his moral perfection, his work of of salvation, stand at the very door, access to God, with free and open access to God. Their sins have been atoned for by the blood of Jesus. That's what he's saying. It is by the blood alone. 
Well, verse 20, we could say by his body. He takes the blood and the body of Christ. And, and he, what he's talking about is the entirety of his life, his, his incarnation, his perfect life, his death, his blood shed on the cross as being our confidence. It was Francis Schaeffer said this, the central message of biblical Christianity is the possibility of men and women approaching God through the work of Christ. It's unfortunate, it's unfortunate when, when believers turn their confidence into arrogance or their access to God goes from a sheer grace alone to their own moral superiority, or we would say religiosity or legalism. It's not. Our confidence is in Christ. It is, look what it says, to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, okay? We talked about this before. The holy place is known as the most holy place or the, the holy of holies, that deepest part in the temple where God dwelt, his Shekinah glory, the panim, the face of God. He met with his people's very presence within the Holy of Holies. That's what he's talking about. And remember, I'll just quickly, once a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. And, and the Holy of Holies was, was, there was a barricade of a veil. And the veil was four inches thick, 60 feet long, 30 feet wide. And, and people knew, don't go beyond that veil into the Holy of Holies unless you're the high priest once a year and prescribed a, a, a very specific way in which you ought to do that. Well, you'll die. And you know, all three of the synoptic gospels, we say synoptic, we mean similar, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. All synoptic gospel says that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, this thick and massive curtain was torn from the top to bottom wide open. God was doing the work. He opened up the presence, opened up his presence. And look what the text says in verse 20. This was a new and living way that was opened up through his flesh, the curtain which is his flesh. It was new. It was a living sacrifice. Christ gave himself up, a human sacrifice. It didn't exist before. That barrier remained there until Jesus' body, his flesh was broken, his blood was shed. At that point, the mediation work of Christ was complete. The curtain necessary, no more. The very presence of God was available for sinners like me and like you. And then Jesus becomes what? Look what it says, our great priest over the house of God. Now in the Old Testament, when you talk about priests being over the house of God, they would talk about the temple. As I mentioned before, the priests, particularly the high priest, they had the, the authority and the, the, the biblical mandate to oversee the temple, to the worship, the, the sacrifices. But here what he's saying is, Jesus doesn't just rule the temple, he rules all of creation. It's not about location anymore. He opened it up for us. He's now the priest over the house, meaning God's people, wherever we meet. Remember um, John 4, the Samaritan woman. Jesus said there's going to come a place at a time, and, and it's here and now, where God is searching what? Not, not worshipers on the mountain. I have it marked. Listen to what he says in, in, in John 4. Oh, the Samaritan woman comes to him. Woman says, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say you got to worship in Jerusalem. There's, there's a place of worship, and there was. And Jesus said to her, women, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. Salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, 
and is now here because Christ is talking and he's there. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking those who worship him in spirit and truth. He's the priest over the house. Kent Hughes wisely says, Jesus, both the curtain, our access, and the priest, our advocate. His torn body, his shed blood, provides our access into the presence of the Father. In our access, he is our perpetual priestly advocate. Family, always remember, always, always remember the very privilege you have and I have to enter into the presence of God, to talk to him, to pray to him, to, 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 to walk with him, to know him, is Christ alone. That will keep us humble. Here's our simple outline as we jump into verse 22. So two things we're going to see today. And what he's saying about all this access and, and he's saying about all this opportunities and all that Christ has done, the blood, his broken body and, and access to the Father. He's saying draw near. We see that. Let us draw near, verse 22. And we're going to see some characteristics and marks of what it, what it, what it means, what it looks like to draw near. And then we'll see the conclusion. What is the outcome? What is the, what is the application of our ability to draw near? And then we'll jump into verse 39, uh, excuse me, 26. And I labeled deserved punishment. Okay? What is the characteristics of the marks of those who what we will see are in apostate life? Or, 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 or they, they have apostatized, they walked away. And then the conclusion, the outcome, and that will take us into communion. So that's where we're headed. So what does it mean? What does all this access mean? Verse 22. Let us draw near, wow, how? With a true heart in full assurance of faith. And that's the point. Because of the body of Christ, because of the blood of Christ, we can approach the Lord's throne with confidence. He's our great high priest. And he says, now we can draw near, how? With a whole heart, holding on to the truth of the gospel. Martin Lloyd-Jones very insightfully said this. Now listen, listen to these words. I, I thought this was really, really helpful to me. It is only when I am near to God, all right, drawing near, true heart, only when I'm near to God in Christ that I know my sins are forgiven. I feel his love. I know I am his child and I enjoy the priceless blessings of peace with God Peace within, peace with others. I am aware of his love. I am given a joy that the world could never give nor ever take away, end quote. That's why we are so gospel-centered here. Preach the gospel to yourself. We draw near with a true heart, or the word really means a sincere heart. A, 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 the heart is, is, the, is the whole human being existent, the will, the emotions. He says, sincerely and truly come genuinely, wholeheartedly before the Lord. In other words, don't be fake. Be honest. Have you ever talked to somebody and, and, you're, and you're talking with them and, and you know like they're, they're, more, they're more concerned about what others may think or say or you know, they're not really concerned about you, they're really concerned more about the relationship they can get from you? This is, what he's talking about is, is coming not pretentiously, but approach to God with a single purpose, with, with a love and devotion. 
of God. Now, remember, when, when Christ inaugurated this new covenant that we've been talking about over and over again, he said twice that the covenant was going to come inaugurated by Christ, and he is going to what? Write his laws on our hearts. Write them on our minds. It is Christ in us, the hope of glory. It is, it is the word of God the work of Christ through the power of the Spirit of Christ that dwells within us, draw near. Secondly, not only should we have a sincerity of heart, an honest heart, his laws are written on our heart. It says in full assurance of faith. This heart, the sincere and true heart, is a believing heart, a trusting heart, assured of who Christ is and what Christ has done, his words, his promises. It's unwavering. Again, it's not about us. It's about all that Christ has done. He is our confidence. He is our boldness. And we are completely certain because of Christ we can enter into his presence. We know that our sins have been forgiven. And this clear-headed confidence, this faith-filled assurance is, is the result of Christ and his work, and that's on our behalf. So he says, draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Next he says what? With a heart sprinkled. Interesting word. Clean from an evil conscience. We've been talking about sprinkling. Earlier on, the Hebrews writer said that Moses sprinkled the book, the law, the utensils, and all the things that there is, there is without the shedding of blood, without this pouring out of blood, the spring of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And on the day of atonement, the priest would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat. We talked about this, the, the place of propitiation, wrath averted, and this idea that, that our sins have been forgiven with the, the shedding of blood. And he says, and, and this, we have that clear conscience. Our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. We've seen this before too. He keeps talking about this. Clear and clean conscience. Do you have a clear and clean conscience today? Are, are you trusting in the work of Christ today? It's very important. If you remember, he says earlier on in the letter, he says that the sacrifices every year was done according to the law of God, but it was also done because God wanted to show them that their sins were really not taken away. They were really not forgiven completely because every year there was a consciousness of sin. But once Christ came, once and for all sacrifice, done away with, cleansed, washed, our sins are forgiven, our conscience is now clear. That's why we need to keep going back to the gospel. That God loves you. That our sins are serious. And that God loves you so much that he sent his son to die for all your sins. Sprinkling is the way in which our consciences are clear. His blood removes our sins. And removes the burden of guilt from our hearts. You're either, you're either here and you're carrying guilt and shame because you haven't trusted Christ and turned to Christ. Or you're here because the enemy is attacking you. You're not standing upon this truth of this reality. Christ forgives all your sins. So we are to draw near with a sincere heart. We are to draw near with a full assurance. Our hearts sprinkled clean. And look what it says. Our bodies washed. Again, I, I think... This refers to baptism. Not literal baptism, but what baptism points to. We have a tank underneath here. 
And the act of baptism is, is, is an outward sign, an outward symbol, a proclamation of the gospel, of what Christ has already done in our hearts. That's why we have believer's baptism after you come to faith. Calvin got it right when he said it's not baptism itself, but it's that baptism symbolizes the spiritual renewal that is the work of the Holy Spirit. And no doubt our author in this text has Ezekiel in his mind, I'm sure of it, because Ezekiel chapter, 20, uh, chapter 36 speaks of the new covenant. And Ezekiel is prophesying hundreds of years before the new covenant is inaugurated by Christ and his shed blood on our behalf. And you know what he says? Ezekiel 36 says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. We heard this already from Jeremiah. I will put within you the new heart, a new spirit, my word. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. That's why baptism is an outward sign. It symbolized the purification of Christ. When we go in the water, we come out of the water. And it's a symbol of the washing power of Christ. And only when we are cleansed, only when we are cleansed can we approach God. We can't do it on our own because we're sinners. But when Christ cleanses us and we have been forgiven and we have been imputed his righteousness, we can go before God. That's what Jesus meant in John 3 when he met Nicodemus. Unless one is born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. In fact, water and spirit is pointing to the same thing. Like Titus 3.5, the washing and the pouring out of spirit upon a believer is connected. And, and Jesus is saying, you need to be cleansed and washed and filled with the spirit. Born again, born anew. To even see the kingdom of God. And our author is saying, listen, come, full assurance, hearts sprinkled clean, bodies washed with pure water. Only the cross, only the gospel. Number five, look at verse 23. Let us draw near, but now, verse 23, let us hold fast. That's a Greek present tense, which is an ongoing. Let us continue to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who is promised is faithful. Confession is not just a doctrinal understanding or a statement of faith to your own soul, but it actually points to something being publicly declared. It is doctrinal and it's public. And you may not want to hear this, and, and, and everyone in this room may be listening. Anyone in the universe has ever been created has a doctrine. Everyone understands theology, the study of God. If you're agnostic or a theist, you, uh, uh, you, you have an understanding of who God is. You may think he doesn't exist. The Bible calls you a fool, but so be it. But you have an understanding. And he's saying, hold to that doctrine. Hold to that confession. What is the confession? That Christ Jesus is the eternal Son of God who died for sins, rose from the dead. That body of truth of the gospel. The substance of our faith is Christ. This is what we believe. What God has revealed. And what we say to others. He says, don't waver in that. Literally means, don't bend. Think of the context of this. There's these Jewish Christians who have confessed Christ to be their hope and salvation and they're under persecution. And the author is saying, don't go back. Hold fast. Stand firm. Be confident. Trust in Christ. He's the only one that can make you right. Don't go back. Hold fast to the confession without wavering. 
Now, we live in a particular, I mean, you, I can't help but say, we live in a particular time when holding fast to the, our confession of faith, to our understanding of orthodoxy of the Scripture, is coming under attack. So I think it's important that we understand that we are to hold fast, we are to not move, we are to cling and, and have full assurance of our faith confidently. But I think it's smart to say that we should not do it arrogantly. I know I mentioned it before. That we should love people still while, hold, still while holding to the truths of the gospel. It can be done by the power of the Spirit. We don't have to join in the angry mobs. We don't have to join in the hatred that's going around today. We can still hold fast to Christ. That's what God would want us to do. And he says to them, look, he is the one. I mean, look at the objective grounds to this. It's not just you holding fast. He who is faithful. It is he who promised is faithful. You're secured in that hope. So, so before we leave this, let me, let me ask you the question, right? Are we treasuring the gospel confidently? Are we confessing it courageously? Or maybe here's a better question in the negative. I don't know. We'll throw it out there. What are you confident in? What are you treasuring in? What are you boldly proclaiming? Political views? You can have them, that's fine. Second Amendment? You can have that too. That's fine. What are we ultimately treasuring? What are we ultimately proclaiming? What are our ultimate hope in? The people of God needs to be Christ. Christ. And I, I, I'm, I'm preaching to myself. Because I can get pretty fired up. But I have to remember. My ultimate hope. And what I'm confident in. And what I'm boldly proclaiming. Had ought to be Jesus. Right? What's the outcome? Look at verse 24. What do we do? Let us consider how to stir up one another. To love and good works. To love a combination. Listen, come before Christ with a pure heart, with bodies washed. And, and there's a sense where there's community involved, but really there's a sense in which we alone have the, have the, have the cleansing work of Jesus, right? It's your heart that's cleansed. Here he says, you know what? You need both. You need to come to Christ and have your hearts cleansed, but you also, you know what? You need to love one another. It's not one or the other, it's both. Both are vital if you want to stand firm in this corrupt, troubled world or the persecution in which they are under or we are under that that so we that we don't go back into old patterns of ways of thinking earlier he said this in chapter three that we must exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you none of us may be hardened by what the deceitfulness of sins now he's, saying, now he's saying stay so connected to each other that you're stirring one another up. You're spurring one another on to love and good works. Notice the threefold appeal here. Look at verse 22. It has to do with faith. Verse 23, hope. Verse 24, love. Faith, hope, and love. Sound familiar? 1 Corinthians 13, 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide, but these three things, the greatest of them is 
love. While one may exercise their faith, grow in their hope, I still think we need each other, love can only be produced in community, serving and loving one another. Now, there's a lot of reasons I would say, and you would say too, why we come to church, okay? Why we gather together as a family in community. Why we, why we, why we come here and gather on Sunday morning. But have you ever considered coming? You ever considered carefully considering how to incite or stir up or provoke one another toward love and good deeds? I bet you're not drinking your coffee this morning thinking, all right, let me, I'm, we've got to leave in about 15 minutes because I really want to stir people up with love and good deeds today. <laughs> Let's be honest, I didn't. Well, I did today because I had to. But that's not what the scripture teaches us, right? We forget this. The exhortation is not simply an appeal for gathering together in fellowship, but that's good. It's to stimulate one another into compassionate activity in the work of Christ. Isn't that what Christ did? He loved us and served us. We have to love and serve one another. That's the gospel. As long as we have breath in our bodies here, the pastor elder team will fight against the separatism, the, the, the individualism, the self-gratification, and press on to community here at our church to love one another and love our community. Ligon Duncan says, it is true that we have assurance because of what Jesus has done. It is true that we have hope because of what Jesus has done. It is also true that we have obligations to one another because of what Jesus has done, end quote. Well, how can it happen? Verse 25. Not stop. Not neglecting, excuse me, verse 25, not neglecting to meet together as in the habit of some. There obviously were some that were not meeting together. And by the way, I just want to throw this out there. The word meeting together, epi-synagogue, is where we get the word synagogue. It's not you having coffee with a brother at Starbucks. And you go ahead and do that because you should do that. But that's not what he's talking about here. Synagogue, the gathering together of God's people under the preaching of God's word in the fellowship of the saints. That's what he's talking about in this text. I'm not saying don't have coffee. Pastor Lou said we can't have coffee at Starbucks. I didn't say that. I'm saying the text and what he's talking about, meeting together is Sunday morning. So I guess I'm speaking to those who are home right now. Not here. There are a lot of people sick, actually, but you, you get my drift, right? We need each other. We can't have confidence, full assurance of faith, apart from the family of God. We cannot press on while living in isolation. Each Christian desperately needs the body of Christ for encouragement, for the regular retelling of the gospel over and over to one another, not just to yourself. Calvin says this, there is so much peevishness or annoyance in almost everyone that individuals, if they could, would gladly make their own churches for themselves. <laughs> this warning is therefore more than needed by all of us that we should encourage to love rather than hate and that we should not separate, us, separate ourselves from those who joined us by a common faith, end quote. Now, as a pastor, when I talk to some of you and some of you that aren't here, and maybe I call how you doing, or you're in a fellowship, or you're in another church, great. But, and I talk to you about gathering together. It could come off as a pastor, as you know what? I just want you to do your religious duty. 
But all the pastors here at this, at this church, that's the furthest thing from our minds, right? It's the furthest thing from our minds. That's not what we want. Uh, we, we, we may needle each other, but we need each other, right? For the deceitfulness of sin, as we read earlier, and here to encourage one another, to stir one another up, and to encourage one another. If you have the gift of encouragement, let me, let me, let me just say, use it, okay? It's a tool that God uses to help us persevere in the faith. Some of you have had childhood teachers, maybe parents, an uncle or an aunt, a parent, a grandparent, who was a great encourager to you. Pastor Don Lyon was that kind of guy for me. And sometimes I wonder, like, really? I'm never going to be able to do that. Yeah, you can do it, you know. He was a great encourager. Some of you never had encouragement, and that has impacted your life. Listen, there, there's amazing power in encouraging words. You and I can have a major impact in the life of others with kind and in words of encouragement. Encourage one another, he says, as you see the day, capital D, drawing near. Christ is coming. Day of judgment will come. We need each other. And God created us to live in community because he is community. Father, Son, and Spirit. One God, three persons. To not gather together, to live as if we could do this on our own is to invite tragedy. We are a family. We are a family. We are soldiers in the fight. We are musicians in the band. And without each other, we're vulnerable against the attacks of the enemy, for discouragement, deceitfulness of sins. And that's, and those who do not heed this truth are the ones seen as being not general, uh, genuine who are vulnerable to walking away from the faith as we get to verse 26. Very hard verses. Now, this is either the fourth or the fifth warning so far. depends on how you count them. But in the most, or the closest parallel verses to chapter 10, 26 through 31 is found in chapter 6. I'm not going to rehash all of that, but let me just say, you can get the CDs online uh, or in the back or online, you can watch the service. What he's talking about here is what's called apostasy, the falling away, the defection of the faith. And there are three major ways to understand the warnings of apostasy in Hebrews or in Scripture. Three possible ways, okay? One is that this apostate, someone who falls away, is actually was a genuine child of God. They received forgiveness of sins. They've been sealed for the day of redemption. They received eternal life, and then they walked away, and eternal life doesn't become eternal anymore. It becomes a short period of time. The problem, of course, with that kind of interpretation is the rest of the Bible. Okay? I'm just saying. The council, whole council of Scripture says that we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. He is our guarantee, which we read while we were singing, of the inheritance to come. We've been placed into the Father's hand and nothing and no one can snatch us out of his hand, John 10. Our salvation is an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you by God's power. 1 Peter 1. I don't think that's possible. Second possible interpretation of these warnings is that it's hypothetical that some people believe that. That it's not really, can't really happen, but the author is using these warnings to spur you on to the faith. That, that it can't really happen, it's just hypothetical. That's possible. 
In fact, in each warning in chapter 6 and here in chapter 10, the author, after he gives the warning, he says, in your case, I feel things will be better for you. It's not really going to happen. Chapter 10, verse 39, which says, you know, we are not of those who shrink back. So it's hypothetical. We want to spur you on in the faith through these warnings. Maybe. But I think the third possible interpretation that I believe is consistent with the rest of Scripture is these warnings were for everyone. But these warnings don't teach that a genuine believer who is saved, redeemed, and reconciled by grace alone can lose what they have not earned. But they're given to us for self-reflection. God uses warnings like this to help believers persevere, yes, examine their hearts, but it's also to call out those who, maybe here, have never really been born again. Just doing your religious duty, just coming to church, reading your Bible and doing things, but you don't have a genuine, intimate relationship with the king of kings. So apostate is not... Uh, describing just unbelievers per se, but those who have fallen away because at one point they actually made a profession of faith, but they were never possessors of that faith. First John speaks about them. He says there are people in the church that went out from us. They went out from us. In the gathering, the physical gathering, when we gathered together on Sunday morning, there was someone that was with us. But they were not of us. For if they had been with us, they would have continued with us. 1 John 2, 19. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. There are those that look like us, lived in community, made a profession, but renounced that, walked away just to show that they were never real. That's what apostasy is. But I will tell you, and some people, you know, there's some famous people that apostatized, just like preached the word, wrote books, and just walked away. And not just walked away. We're not just talking backsliding. We're talking about renouncing Christ. They never were his. It's that simple, 1 John 2, 19. Verse 26. For if we, congregation, because I don't have a, I don't have a, 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 a magnifying score. I can't say, look, let, let, me, let me, give me put these glasses on, and I could see who's genuine, who's not. I don't, I don't have that. Nobody does. If we, congregation at large, go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there's no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a, a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury, a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. How's that verse? The Greek word deliberately is actually begins the sentence in the Greek. And that, that, what that does, that means it just stresses how it, the, the importance of that, that word. And the warning against sinning deliberately does not mean that if we sin a lot, somehow it nullifies the sacrifice of Christ. In other words, it's not saying that if we believers persist in sinning deliberately, there comes a point where the effect of Christ's sacrifice runs out. The blood no longer cleanses you and washes you. It's like, well, Lou, <laughs> yeah. 1,275 is all I got for you, man. You blew that when you were 12. I'm sorry. There's no longer the effect of Christ on you. You surpassed your forgiveness. That's not what he's saying. What the writer's saying using this adverb is not believers who are struggling with sin or struggling with particular sins. 
and displease the Lord, but the continuing sin of rejecting God's authority, rejecting God's provision. The person persists in open rebellion against the Lord, against his word, against his provision. Notice what it says. He deliberately sins after receiving the knowledge of the truth, the contents of the gospel. This can only mean that he knows and once verbalized, profess what God has done, but he has intentionally, knowingly rejected it and willfully continues in a relentless state of sinful disbelief. And some people read chapter 6 and some read chapter 10 and they say, it sure does sound like a Christian. I'm like, yeah, that's the point. Apostates look like believers. It's not like, oh, yeah, Charlie, yeah, that drunken, you know, womanizer. You, can you believe he walked away from the church? Like, no, I believe it. I mean, I don't. It's not that. It's that they look like it. And yet they are really not part of us, and they reject Christ. Calvin, again, the apostle described in, in, in this verse, describes as sinners, not those who fall in any kind of sin, but those who forsake the church and separate themselves from Christ. There is a great difference, he says, between individual lapses and universal desertion of the kind which makes for a total falling away from the grace of Christ, end quote. The sin here, and just so you know, contextually, all surrounding these verses refers to those who hear and know the gospel and still deliberately and definitively reject it. They understand the truth, but they walk away in deliberate and willful sin against God and the gospel and his provision. Rebellion against God is written under the Old Testament. Do you know that deliberate and willful sins, Exodus 21, Numbers 15, um, rebellion against God, there was no sacrifices for sin. Sacrifices and forgiveness of sacrifices, goats and animal sacrifices, forgiveness were available for people who unwittingly and inadvertently sinned. The person who's willfully sinned, the Old Testament says they had, it's very interesting, they were people who had a high hand against God. Deliberate, willful sin that's not forgive, that doesn't, that Old Testament didn't, you didn't get forgiveness was a high hand against God. That's what Numbers says. And they were cut off from the people who despised the word of the Lord. The high hand. Know what that means? That means sticking your finger in the face of God and the middle one at that. And not just angrily. It's just saying to God, you know what? I'm not doing what you said. I'm not, I am not going to hear what you say about sin, what you say about forgiveness of sin. It's a radical rebellion against the gospel. That's what he's talking about. And the one who rejects the gospel and willingly and deliberately rejects Christ, look what it says. For if we go on sinning deliberately, if we reject what Christ has done, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. That's what he's talking about. There no longer, why? Because we rejected the only sacrifice that can forgive us of our sins. If you're here and you're rejecting the work of Christ on the cross, there's no forgiveness for you. There's no forgiveness for you. There's no other way. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to me. No one comes to the Father but through me. That's, what, that's the point. There is no forgiveness for a person who has made that decision. The author's been saying over and over again that Christ's self-sacrifice is the only means of forgiveness. Chapter 9, Jesus alone entered once into the holy place, not by the blood of calves and goats, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Chapter 10, verse 12, Christ alone offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, 
and sat down at the right hand of God. That's what he's saying. If, you, if you're going to deliberately and willfully turn your back on the sacrifice of Christ, there's no sacrifice for you. Then he goes, it's very interesting. The author then moves from, from this argument to what is called a fortiori. In Latin, it means from the stronger, from the lesser to the stronger. Look at verse 28. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses, going back to the Old Testament, dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. What he's saying is under the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 17 in particular, those who sinned against God, particularly he's talking here about two or three witnesses against those who actually not only rebelled against God, but uh, were worshiping false gods, idolatry, were put to death with two or three witnesses. And the author's going, listen, do you remember that part of the Old Testament when you committed adultery, excuse me, idolatry, and there were two or three witnesses? What happened? Oh, that's right, they stoned you to death. If you think that's bad, verse 29, how much worse? How much more worse, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one, that's the word deserved, by the one who has trampled on the foot the Son of God and has profaned unholy or unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. Judgment is worse. If you think, oh man, a God of the Old Testament, he's mad. He's an angry God. I mean, just read some of that Old Testament stuff. What does it say? More characteristics of the apostate. Look at number one. Trampled on the foot the Son of God. What do you trample on the foot? That in which you believe is worthless, of no value. And you're treating Christ by rejecting Christ with utmost contentment. And look what he says. He says in verse 28, excuse me, 29, trample on the foot who? Not Jesus. He doesn't use the word Jesus. He doesn't even use the word the Messiah, Christ. What does he say? The Son of God. And the author's been talking a lot about the Son of God, speaking of the deity of Christ. So I think part of this has to do with those who don't recognize Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, the deity of who Jesus is as the Son of God, right? Hebrews opened up, number one, first verse, first, second, and third verse. God spoke in many ways and many times through the prophets. Now he spoke through his Son. He appointed heirs of all things. He's the creator of the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Chapter one, he says, thou art my Son. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Moses was a servant in the house of God. Jesus is son over the house of God. You see what he's saying? By trampling who Christ is, his person. Look at secondly, profaning the blood of Christ. He First he said who Jesus is, his, his person. Now he's attacking the work of Christ. Again, the blood of Christ. His life willingly offered. Not animals, but his own life can clear a conscience, can forgive sins, can wash us clean we love to sing, oh, precious is the flow that makes us white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus by which we have been sanctified. The work of the sanctifying work of Christ. We already saw in Hebrews that we are sanctified, we've been set apart by the work of Christ. It is the blood that ratifies the covenant and if we reject the blood of Christ, we reject the sacrifice of Christ, we are walking into punishment. Third, and has outraged the spirit of grace. Okay, what does that remind you of? But by, by outraging the spirit of grace, it reminds me of Jesus speaking about the unforgivable, the unpardonable sin against the Holy Spirit. Whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, Jesus said. Think of it this way. Think of it this way. When you think about the unpardonable sin or here being a disgrace or outraging the spirit of grace, think of it this way. 
The ministry of the Holy Spirit alone, the person, the third person of the Trinity alone, is how we get to see and receive the grace that is offered in the cross. The Father planned and sent the Son for our salvation. On the cross, the Son purchased and secured our salvation, and the coming of the Holy Spirit applies and preserves our salvation. And when you reject the Holy Spirit, the gracious, kind work of the Holy Spirit, pointing to Jesus, pointing to the gospel, when it's met with scornful response, there only stands judgment. Those who trample the Christ, profane the blood, outraged against the Spirit, are condemned. Deny the only way of forgiveness. Now, that is one serious characteristics of those who reject Christ. Trampling under the foot, taking Christ, his deity, his, his, his person, and trampling under it, profaning, calling the blood unclean, unnecessary, unworthy, unvaluable, and then outraged. And that's like contentment against the Holy Spirit. That's what apostates are. That's what they become. Now, verse 27, we'll close and go to communion. Deliberate sin brings with it a fearful, verse 27, expectation of judgment, a fury fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Family, verse 26, excuse me, verse 27 comes from Isaiah 26. And the fiery hot judgment of God will come. God will judge his adversaries with fire. God will judge his adversaries with fire. And those who reject the work of Christ will only reap wrath. This is sobering for you this morning. This is sobering for me this morning. It's sobering. It it is the work that will happen. It is the judgment that will come. Verse 30. For we know him, God, who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. As an enemy of the cross, Christ will come. And the only thing left for those who reject him is perdition. And the author promises readers that God alone will take vengeance, that God alone will repay, that God alone will judge. It's a very serious, severe, somber, and grave reality. The the God who they have confessed, who is gracious and merciful, is also of God of holiness and justice and faith in Christ. The new covenant in his blood leads to life and forgiveness, and those who reject him and rebel leads to retribution. God gave his son to die. It is the only way that you and I can be saved. And we despise his death, we fall into his hands. In the real world, family, no matter what they're telling you in school, no matter what the culture of the television tells you, in the real world that God created, it includes divine judgment and vengeance and the terrifying, furious fire of God's wrath. Now listen carefully. 
A God who is not angry with sin. A God who is not wrathful against sin. A God who doesn't care about the evil things going on to his creation. A God who does not administer justice is not a good God. Even as sinful and selfish we are, we know that a good judge, a good parent, hates to see the one that they love abused and sinned against. And this passage leaves no doubt that God will indeed judge those who reject him. His divine vengeance and justice await those who trample the Son, who regard his blood as profane, and who insult and deny the Holy Spirit. We see justice all around our world, and sometimes it's laughable. But the Lord's justice will be perfect and eternal. The Bible, and that includes Jesus himself, says that hell is very real. And the instant, the the moment someone dies without Christ, who rejects the Son, they are in that place of separation from God forever. The only thing the apostate has. Escaping judgment. Listen, this morning, we're going to wrap up in a minute. Escaping judgment is a good motive to turn from sin and come to Jesus. Escaping judgment is a good motive to turn from sin and come to Jesus, but don't stay there. It was John Piper who said, we can be motivated to come to Christ out of fear, and that may be a good thing, provided that when we come to Christ, we want Christ. We treasure Christ, and not only his gifts, and we want him more than the gifts. So what shall we do this morning? What shall we do this morning? Listen to me. Do not, do not go on deliberately sinning against Christ, against the gospel, against God's provision, against God's son, against the blood that was shed, but come to Jesus this morning. The band's gonna come up. Come on up, band. On the night in which Jesus, I want everyone else just, I'm closing out now. On the night, and I want you to, I want to, everything I've said about judgment and wrath and about God, I want to wrap it up for you to walk out of here understanding something. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, on the night in which Jesus was arrested and betrayed, he went to the Garden of Gethsemane and he fell on his face and his father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And he prayed in agony and his sweat became like drops of blood. James Boyce says this was not a man shrinking from physical death. It was the horror of the holy, eternal Son of God as he faced the experience of being made sin for us and bearing the wrath of separation from God, from the love of God in our place. He was delivered up so that we would be spared. He bore the wrath of God so that we might never bear it. And I want you to see that this morning. In Nahum it says, the Lord is a jealous God avenging God. He takes vengeance on his adversary. Who could stand before his indignation? His wrath is poured out like a fire. And I want you to know this morning that when Jesus went to the cross and took the cup, that wrath, that punishment, that vengeance was poured out on Christ for you and for me. And when he cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Is the very fiery, hot wrath of God poured out. Judge on him for you. That shows you this morning and me this morning how much God loves you, how much God wants you, how much God cares for you, and all that God has done to bring you into his presence. Therefore, let us not trample under the foot 
of the Son of God. Let us not count unholy the blood that was poured out, precious in his value, saving in his power. Let us not insult the Spirit of grace who bears testimony to such love, the love of Christ, after Christ bore his sins on the cross. After Christ bore his sins on the cross, he cried out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. That's what he said. And here's the question. Will you fall into the hands of a holy God and be punished and have his vengeance and wrath poured onto you? Or will you fall into the hands, as Jesus did, into a loving father who forgives you of your sins? Into my hands, into your hands, Father, I commit my spirit. Come to the hands of God's love by accepting the truth of the gospel. That Christ died for your sins. His blood was shed. He was placed in the grave. Three days later, he rose from the dead. Do you know that this morning? That's what this table's about. The bread is his body was broken. The blood, the shed blood. The, the cup is the blood that was shed on your behalf. If you're a believer, come. If today's the day of your salvation, you say, I'm a sinner. I've, I, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I have guilt. I know that I have shame. I'm giving it to Jesus who died on my behalf, who shed his blood for me, then come on up. Today's the day of your salvation. Come on up. But if you're not a believer, this table is just for believers who trusted Christ this morning. Trust him today. Worship him today. Let us pray. Father, your love is just as potent as your wrath. But your provision for us is beyond anything we could understand or imagine. So God, we glorify you. We give you praise today that you did not leave us in our sin, in our state of running from you, but you came into this world in the person of Christ, lived that perfect life we could never live, died the death we should have died. Lord Jesus, praise you. Three days later, you rose from the grave. And now, Holy Spirit, we pray as a congregation, as a people, and we want to pray for everyone in this room that we would worship you and praise you because you, Lord Jesus, spilled your blood and took our sin, bore our wrath, our punishment, our deserved punishment upon yourself. And we stand now, not in our own goodness, but in yours. Help us, Father, to take of this cup, to to take of this bread, to take of this cup in a humbled manner, recognizing what you have done for us. In Jesus Christ we pray, amen.